Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 21. 2 Samuel, chapter 21, is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to start reading in verse 15. So 2 Samuel 21, starting in verse 15. We're going to read through the end of the chapter, and then we're going to read a good portion of chapter 23 as well. But we'll start in 2 Samuel 21, verse 15. Here is what Holy Scripture says. Once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. And Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels, and who was armed with a new sword, said he would kill David. But Abishai, son of Zeruah, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, saying, Never again will you go out with us to battle, so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. In the course of time, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. At that, at that time, Sibachai the Hushethite killed Saph, one of the descendants of Rapha. In another battle with the Philistines of Gob, Elhanan, son of Jair, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. In still another battle, which took place at Gath, there was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all. I learned a new word this week, hexadigitation. That's what that is, hexadigitation. And a terrible way to teach people how to count. They would never be able to... Okay, verse 21, sorry. When he taunted Israel, when this Egyptian huge man taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, David's brother, killed him. These four were descendants of Rapha and Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. Now, flip over with me to chapter 23. You'll remember why we're doing this, chapter 23, starting in verse 8. Remember that the epilogue, the last three chapters of 2 Samuel, are a chiasm. And starting from the outside in, the beginning scene and the end scene, and then the middle scenes, they all build, they echo the end scenes, and then the middle scenes echo and repeat one another. It's a literary technique. So there's mighty men described in 21 and mighty men described in 23, and we're working our way slowly to the middle. Uh, the chiasm, of course, is, is to help you remember the content, and it's supposed to focus our attention on that middle. We're getting there eventually. But for right now, verse 8 of 23, more warriors. These are the names of David's mighty warriors. Josheb Bashabath, a Takamanite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Ahohite. As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastamim for battle. Then the Israelites retreated. But Eliezer stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eliezer, but only to strip the dead. Next to him was Shema, son of Agi, the Hararite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shema took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down. And the Lord brought about a great victory. 
During harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came to David at the cave of Adullam while a band of Philistines was camped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is, not the blood of men who went, is this not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruah, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he had killed, and so he became as famous as the three. Was he not held in greater honor than the three? He became their commander, even though he was not included among them. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors, He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched his spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous as the three mighty warriors. He was held in greater honor than any of the 30, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. Among the 30 were, here we go, Asahel, the brother of Joab, Alhanan, son of Dodo from Bethlehem, Shammah, the Herodite, Eliakah, the Herodite, Helez, the Peltite, Eras, son of Ikesh from Tabcoa, Abiezer from Anathoth, Sibachai, the Hushethite, Zaman, the Ahahite, Maharai, the Netephethite, Heled, son of Baanah, the Netephethite, Ithai, son of Ribai from Gibeah and Benjamin, Benaiah the Pyrethonite, Hidai from the ravines of Gaash, Abi Elban the Arbathite, Osmavath the Barhumite, Eliaba the Shalbanite, the sons of Jeshun, Jonathan son of Shema, the Hararite, Ahayim the son of Sharar, the Hararite, Eliphelet son of Ahazbai, the Mahakathite, Eliam, son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Hezro, the Carmelite, Pa'arai, the Arbite, Igel, son of Nathan, from Zobah, the son of Hagri, Zelek, the Ammonite, Naharai, the Beherathite, the armor-bearer of Joab, son of Zeruah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gareb, the Ithrite, and Uriah, the Hittite. There were 37 in all. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Next time I ask you to read scripture, just say no. Just, just say no. Well, we're going to talk about courage today. What else, after reading this list and after reading about these exploits, could we talk about besides courage? Uh, We just read about this man, Benaiah. Benaiah went against a huge Egyptian. All he had in his hand was a club, and the Egyptian had a spear, and he took the spear from the Egyptian and killed him with his own weapon. That's bold. What can we talk about besides courage this morning? Some of you, you hold this passage uh, of Scripture, this list and this description of bravery, you hold it very close to your heart because you aspire to live a life that, you, that would earn you a place on this list. You, you want to join this list of courageous men, and so you love this passage of Scripture. 
I think that, that courage is a topic, you can disagree with me about this if you want to, but I think courage is a topic that particularly appeals to men. Now, let's be clear, no one here is in favor of cowardly women. God spare us from whimpering women, right? But a courage is a particular subject that draws the attention of men. It makes us sit up a little bit uh, taller. It, it warms our blood. We want to be courageous people. We, we tell courageous stories. We want to watch courageous movies. We, we sing courageous songs and we recite courageous poems. Uh, no one in this room, no one in this room, if you identify your hero, names someone who's a coward. Uh, one of the great stories of courage, of course, from history comes uh, involves a man by the name of Ernest Shackleton. Do you know the story of Ernest Shackleton? It's a great story. He was an explorer, and in the early 20th century, he wanted to recruit a group of men. He wanted to be the first leader, the leader of the first expedition that crossed the Antarctic from coast to coast going through the South Pole. So he recruited a group, 56 men. It was the Imperial Transarctic Expedition. The expedition fell apart even before they got to the continent. Before they reached land, their ship, called the Endurance, ironically, was caught in ice and crushed. And the 59 men abandoned ship and floated on ice in the Antarctic for 497 days. Eventually they landed on uh, an island, but it, the island was so far out of the way of navigation, so far a, a small island, nowhere near any, anywhere, that um, Shackleton decided if they were ever going to be rescued, someone had to go to get help. So he and five other men set sail in a 20-foot lifeboat, and they sailed 720 miles to the closest island where they could get help. And all 56 men survived. So when Shackleton was looking for explorers, and I think it was uh, the 19-teens, he put an advertisement in the newspaper. This is a somewhat famous ad. I'll read it to you. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in, in event of success. Do you know how many hundreds of men responded to that ad? Deep down, every man in particular aspires to be the sort of person that could respond to that ad. What I want to do this morning from this text, I want to talk about three things. First, we're going to talk about where courage comes from. And then secondly, we're going to talk about what courage does. And third, we're going to talk about why courage matters. Where it comes from, what courage does, and why courage matters. My particular interest this morning is in Christian courage. I'm particularly interested in a particular form of courage. Courage that is the fruit of our convictions as followers of Jesus. And I'll tell you why that particular type of courage matters to me in a few minutes. But let's start here. Where does courage come from? Where does courage come from? Well... As we approach these texts, I want to begin by telling you how I changed my mind about these verses. When I originally picked up this passage of Scripture, my original idea was to treat this as a sort of band of brothers of the Old Testament. 
Most of you might be familiar with that. The phrase Band of Brothers was first written by William Shakespeare in the play Henry V. And it's part of a speech that Henry V delivers before the, the Battle of Agincourt. This great battle and Henry V delivers this speech about how these soldiers were the lucky few that were to be the Band of Brothers and go into glorious battle together. Well, the American historian Stephen Ambrose in 1994 took up that, uh, that line, Band of Brothers, and he used it as a title in a book that he wrote about Easy Company. Easy Company is part of the 2nd Battalion of the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment that was assigned to the U.S. Army's 101st Airborne Division. So Stephen Ambrose followed their story. He traced their history from their training in Georgia all the way through D-Day and then on into the end of the war. And in 2001, HBO, uh, Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg were involved in this, HBO turned that book into a a mini-series. It's also called Band of Brothers. It's, it's a story about the, the brotherhood of war, the camaraderie that takes place under those conditions. You, you see and read about the men and how they grew to love one another as they fought together this great battle. I originally thought that this was going to be like the Old Testament band of brothers. That was my original idea that we were going to spend some time this morning talking about our corporate courage that marked David's warriors and that should mark us as followers of Jesus. Uh, uh, This is where some commentators, some people have gone in the text. This is David and his mighty men together in battle. And uh, Robert Chisholm, I I love Robert Chisholm's writings, but he, he said that this chapter, the message of this chapter, I'll tell you what he says. He says, the message... Of this chapter is that when the Lord gives his servants a task to do, David, he provides support to aid them in their endeavors. I think that sounds, that sounds pretty good, this camaraderie. I think it would have been true, and I think it would have been helpful. I, think, I dare to hope that it might have even been inspirational. We long to be people of courage, and we long for this sort of brotherhood. I think it would have been true, and I think it would have been helpful, but I'm not sure that I think that it would have been what this passage of Scripture teaches. I don't think this is the Old Testament band of brothers. One reason I think that is because the text is very explicit in saying that some of these men fought alone. Did you catch that as we were going through verse 9 of chapter 23? Right toward the end, actually right before verse, uh, verse 10, the last lines of verse 9, it says, Then the Israelites retreated, but Eliezer stood his ground. He stood there and fought all day long. And at the end of verse 10, it says, The troops returned to Eliezer, but only to strip the dead. Thanks, guys. The band's breaking up, apparently. Right? Eliezer's all alone. Actually, the same thing happens in, in verse 11. Uh, right at the end of verse 11, Israel's troops fled, but Shema took his stand in the middle of the field. This is not really about camaraderie here. They're fighting alone. These men are undeniably brave, that, uh, but their courage, I don't think, comes from the brotherhood. I think the courage in this passage, the emphasis of this text on their courage, is that their courage comes not from their brotherhood, but from their loyalty to David. That's the point of this passage. 
It's not really about camaraderie. It's about loyalty. Now, follow me here. I want to make a case for that. that before this passage is about courage even, it's about loyalty. Now, I think you, you learn that or you can build the case for this by first of all thinking about the whole structure of this passage. So this is the epilogue and these last few chapters of the book of 2 Samuel are here to tell us how to remember David. How should we think about David? Don't just think about him as the shepherd boy who killed the giant or don't just think about him as the king who committed adultery. Um, w- w- here are these chapters that tell us Well, we talked about this once already, that we should think of David as the king who loved justice. We talked about that from chapter 21. And then we talked from chapter 24 about how he is a king who took a leading role in repentance and sacrifice in the nation. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to talk about the fact that David is a king who depended on and delighted in God. That's how you should remember him. And here is this list of names in the midst of that. I think this passage is here to remind us about David. Not only did he care about justice and not only was he the chief repenter and chief sacrificer in the nation, David also was the sort of king that inspired the loyalty of courageous men. David was the sort of king who men saw brave, strong, courageous men. They saw David and they wanted to be with him and they wanted to be like him. This is a story about their loyalty to David. Think with me about that uh, uh, with the story of the water in Bethlehem. It's in chapter 23, starting in verse 13. So we don't know exactly when this happened sometime in David's life. It was before the Philistines, the Philistine threat had been eliminated. And David's headquarters is in Adalam, a cave there, and and the Philistines are in Bethlehem, and it's harvest time. Why are the Philistines in Bethlehem at harvest time? Well, remember the the phrase Bethlehem means house of bread? I think they're there to steal the grain. Harvest time, and they're going to get the food. And in verse 15 of chapter 23, David uh, just wistfully sighs, Oh, for water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. He could get water closer. There's a lot of water closer. It's not a question of him being thirsty. He's being uh, nostalgic for his hometown. He's, he's wishing that he were at home instead of his enemies in Bethlehem. He's, you know what this is like, this wistful longing. I'm sure that they can make chicken corn soup in Montana. I'm sure they can make red beet eggs and whoopie pies in Montana, but they don't taste the same as they do in Lancaster County, Right? Okay, thank you. Yes, okay. Right. Okay, I will testify from an objective standard, you probably can make wings outside of Buffalo, but they don't taste as good as they do in Buffalo. So David is just, oh, the water in Bethlehem, it's so good. So uh, these men, three men, hear David's wistfulness and they fight their way through enemy lines. They get water out of that, that well and, and they travel back. It's a 25-mile trip. So they get back and you used to see the site, right? So here they come. They're, they're, probably the last couple miles are getting pretty excited because they, they got this water for David. And, and they come and they're sweaty and they're bruised and probably they've got cuts here and there. They're bleeding a little bit. And they kneel down and they say, here's your water that you wanted. And David takes it and he pours it on the ground. Okay, now that would be terrible, right? Except for what David says. David says uh, um, he's pouring it out to the Lord 
He said, this, is, this water is too precious for me to drink. I'm going to offer it as a sacrifice to God. It is, God, this is your water because these men, it's, it's, it's as valuable to me as their blood is. And I, I pour it out to you to honor. David does not think he is worthy of the sacrifices these men have made. Uh, he only thinks God deserves that. But they think that he is worthy of this sacrifice. This is how loyal they are to him. I think the reason that these 37 names, these 37 men are listed in chapter 23, they're listed by their name and, and some of them their, their location too. Many of them are identified by hometown. It's to show that David's leadership attracts men from every tribe, from every region, from multiple nationalities, not just Israelites. They come for David's sake. And you have here uh, well, uh, a foretaste of what happens in, in the book of Revelation in chapter 4 when around the throne of King Jesus, people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people are worshiping him. There's a little foretaste of that here as David, all these mighty men, all these people from, all these men from all these regions are, are here for loyalty to David. Now, here we can start to turn to thinking about Christian courage See, their loyalty is not just about David as a man, but to David as God's anointed king. We see that back in chapter 21, all right, back in chapter 21, that first scene that we read in verse 15, there's another undated battle here. I don't know when this took place. David is on the field, he goes to war, and word spreads among the Philistines, David's here, David's here, and every Philistine soldier thinks to himself, I want to be the one to kill David. Especially this big lug, Ishbi Benab. And, 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 and because they all want to kill David, they, they gather around the king and he's just worn out. And Ishbi Benab is, uh, has a spear that weighs about seven pounds, and, uh, the spearhead, and he's about to kill David. And Abishai jumps in. Abishai, his nephew. I've been tough on Abishai, David's nephews, for some time. But here I'm thankful for Abishai. He defends him, and then, then uh, he kills Ishbi Benab. And then in verse 17, they say to David, Never again will you go out to battle out with us to battle, so that, and here's what they call David, the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. David, you're the one who shines the light for us. You're the one without whom we would stumble in the dark. You are, David, the epitome of our communion with God. David, you're God's anointed king. You're God's adopted son. You're the one through whom all of God's promises are going to be fulfilled. Now, it's not hard to take one step further and read this as a follower of Jesus and finally land here on the source of Christian courage. Where does Christian courage come from? Christian courage is an expression of your loyalty to Jesus. It's where Christian courage comes from. Why do followers of Jesus do courageous things? Because of our loyalty to Jesus. Now I want to think with you about that for just a minute, and then I want to give you an example uh, from church history about that. When I say that Christian courage, your courage, is an expression of your loyalty to Jesus, I'm telling you that I believe that Jesus is worthy of this sort of loyalty. 
that as he is, is described in the Bible, he's described in such a way as to inspire your fidelity. These men here saw something in David that moved them. It was powerful enough that even his wistful wishes they received as, his, as commands. The same thing is true even more so about the Lord Jesus. He's worthy of this sort of loyalty. I wonder if you see him this way. Do you believe this about him? That, that, do you put him in the company of leaders that you would follow anywhere? William Wallace, Dick Winters, George Washington, Lord Nelson, Oliver Hazard Perry. Some of you don't know who that is. Oliver Hazard Perry won the Battle of Lake Erie, and my hometown is named after Oliver Hazard Perry. He famously said in the battle, we have met the enemy and they are ours. Or, or uh, John Paul Jones, I have not yet begun to fight. Does Jesus fit into that category for you of men like that? If not, I, I wonder why not. I wonder if, if you know the real Jesus or know him as he really is. A couple of years ago, we learned an, a song that I, 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 I would like to sing it more, but the tune is, I have a hard time. I can't fit all the words into the tune. There doesn't seem to be enough notes for all the words that you try to, I don't, I don't sing it very well. It's an old hymn. Okay, it's called Look Ye Saints, right? I wrote the words down if you want to look. Look ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now from the fight return victorious. Every knee to him shall bow. Crown him, crown him. Crowns become the victor's brow. Crowns become the victor's brow. You should love this song. Um, Maybe Jesus doesn't inspire this sort of loyalty in you because you only see him as the man of sorrows. The man of sorrows went to war when he went to the cross. He died in what appeared to be weakness and shame. And, and all you can think about is the fact that Jesus is meek and mild. But as the song says, look at him now. Look at him now. He's returned from the fight. And how did he come home? Victoriously. He died in a fight not with Roman soldiers and not with the Jews, but with the powers of sin and death. Sin and death that had the human race in a death grip. Sin and death that held us in bondage because of our sin. We were children of God's wrath and death was the penalty that we owed. But he bore that penalty himself. He died as our champion, our substitute. He rose again and he ascended from heaven and at the right hand of his father he says to us all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Followers of Jesus look to him not merely as the suffering servant, not merely as the one to whom we turn for forgiveness and life, but we look to him as the risen Lord, the light of the world, the one to whom we owe the highest acclamation. Hark, it's a word we don't use very often, it's a good word, hark, hark those bursts of acclamation. February 4th, 2018, Tom Brady on the 49-yard line receives a snap and he moves back and he looks down the field for a Hail Mary pass that will give his team uh, the upper hand. 
He throws the ball and it flies through the air and doesn't land in the hands of the Gronk like it's supposed to. And all of a sudden, in that stadium and at homes all over Philadelphia, yay, southeastern Pennsylvania, there are harks, harking loud acclamations. Right? Loud, triumphant chords. Well, the song says, Jesus takes the highest station. Oh, what joy that sight affords. Followers of Jesus are not courageous because we are adrenaline junkies. We don't take risk for the sake of risk. We don't take risks because we love dangers and because we love thrills, not because we want to live on the edge. Followers of Jesus are not courageous people because we're trying to make up for some sense of inadequacy. You know, a lot of people, that's um, courage. A lot of what, what manifests itself as courage or what people think is courage is, is just people trying to get an adrenaline high or it's because they're trying to fix themselves. I don't feel manly enough by myself, so I'm going to jump out of planes over and over again so that I begin to feel more manly. We're not trying to make up to prove something. That's not Christian courage. Christian courage is an expression of loyalty to Jesus. I mentioned a few weeks ago that Scott and Celia and I are reading a biography of John Patton. John Patton was a missionary to the cannibals in the South Seas. Uh, from 1858 to 1862, so uh, a couple of years while we were fighting a civil war here. He lived on the island. Today the island is called Vanuatu. You can find it on your map, or uh, at the time it was called Tana. He was in constant danger from the cannibals. I, I don't have time to tell you the whole, all the stories, just a couple. Soon after he arrived, one of the chiefs, who had a very passing familiarity with Christians, Christianity, said to him, Our fathers loved and worshipped the one you call the devil, the evil spirit, and we are determined to do the same. We're going to worship him, and and, uh, now our people are determined to kill you if you do not leave this island. They didn't make him a welcome basket or anything. One time he was in his house, a group of warriors surrounded his house, and he escaped his house, he climbed a tree, he hid for hours up in that house, up in the tree, while they scoured the island looking for him. On another occasion he went to visit a chief who was very sick, and he was going to pray for the chief, and while he leaned over to pray for the chief, knelt next to him, the chief grabbed a knife and put it right next to his heart, and he said, you better run. John Patton said, I ran. Four miles until he got home. So the witch doctors in this, in this, on this island used to call down curses on him all the time. They'd pray to the spirits and call down curses. And John Patton said to them, he would say regularly to them, you call down every curse that you have, and if I still show up on Sunday to preach, you better listen because it means that my God is stronger than yours. <laughs> a little bit of an Elijah moment there, you know. Day after day after day he endured this. He had a dog, a little Scottish terrier, I think, named Clutha. And, and Clutha would bark and bark when he would hear the warriors coming and he would run through the woods and hide. Uh, every uh, Sunday when he would preach, people, warriors would show up and they'd glare at him with their spears and their knives and their clubs. Uh, Paul Schleilen, his, uh, his, his biographer, wrote this about him. 
The source of Patton's courage was his intimate walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. The devout are often the most daring. The confidence accompanying godly people is not like the swagger of a boy carrying a toy gun, but more akin to the boldness of a marine aboard a battleship. The latter knows where the strength lies. Patton himself wrote this. In Jesus I felt invulnerable and immortal so long as I was doing his work. And I can truly say that these were the moments when I felt my Savior to be most truly and sensibly present, inspiring and empowering me. Do you know Jesus well enough that he's the source of your courage? Is your loyalty to him such that it drives out the controlling interests of other people? That's what cowardice is, isn't it? Cowardice comes when you cede control of your life to what you say and what you do to someone who is unworthy of that sort of power. That's what cowardice is. Cowardice is living your life according to the standards of someone who doesn't have the the right or the authority or the wits to control what you say and do. In cowardice, you're not controlled by what Jesus thinks but you're afraid of what your peers will do or your classmates or your parents or your children. You've ceded control of your life to someone who doesn't deserve it. Now, I know that the emphasis of this passage, I just made a case for it, is not about camaraderie, but here's also where Christian camaraderie comes from, right? Our common loyalty to Jesus. We gather on Sundays to affirm it together. We gather in small groups to encourage one another in our loyalty to Jesus. We get baptized to publicly profess our loyalty to Him. Grace Baptist Church of Millersville is a society committed to the supremacy of Jesus in all things, and we endeavor together for His sake, out of loyalty to Him, to orient our lives increasingly around Him. Isn't that why we gather together? That's where courage comes from. Our loyalty to Jesus. Now, we have to move on, and we're going to talk more succinctly about what courage does and uh, why courage matters. So let's move on. Secondly, here we're going to talk about uh, what courage does. What does courage do? The answer is simply it imitates. Christian courage is imitation. It imitates. I wonder if you notice as we read this passage how much of what these men did, these brave men, mimics what David had already done. David did all of these things first, and then his men followed. In chapter 21, we have the accounts of four battles with uh, the Philistines, and four times the text says, descendants of Rapha. Your translation might say giants. Your translation probably says, if you have an ESV, I think many, many of the contemporary uh, translations say giants. The NIV takes Rapha as a personal name, like there was a guy named Rapha and he had a bunch of kids and they all went to war. But uh, uh, probably it's talking about a group of people that Deuteronomy and Joshua calls the Rephaim, the the Rapha-like people, who are huge. They're giants. They've got, their hands are so big you can put six fingers on it, right? On each one. They're Big guys. David is a giant killer. He killed Goliath, and so are his mighty men. They're giant killers too. David goes first, they follow. Now, 
while we're talking about this, I should just mention in verse 19 a little bit of a textual problem that we have. If you ever read anything from a um, less conservative position than our church takes toward the Bible, you might have uh, uh, read something about verse 19. Verse 19 says that Elhanan, my translation says, the son of Jer, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath the Gittite. Now, my translation has a footnote, and yours probably does too, that in, in the most reliable texts of Second Samuel, the phrase, the brother of, is not there. Um, instead, it would say, Elhanan, the son of Jer, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath. Okay, so you see the obvious problem. There's a contradiction. There would then be a contradiction between 2 Samuel 21 and 1 Samuel 17. Who killed Goliath? Was it David or was it Elhanan? Well, there's a lot of discussion about this, a lot of debate. And, and there's, there's some people who think that Goliath might have been a title and not a, a personal name of someone. So David killed the Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, and then, uh, then Elhanan killed another Goliath, maybe. There's, or there's some people who think that Elhanan was another name for David. All these people in the Old Testament, they have so many names, and that maybe... Uh, the solution that the NIV opts for here, or this text, comes from the parallel passage in Chronicles, where it very clearly says that Elhanan killed Goliath's brother. Pick whichever solution you want. This should not destroy your confidence in the Bible. I'll just mention it, though, because you might read someone who's trying to destroy your confidence in the Bible based on this. The point is that Alhanan killed giants just like David. Or uh, in that same passage here, verse 21 of chapter 21, so this, this huge descendant of Rapha killed, uh, taunted Israel and Jonathan killed him. Well, remember, Goliath taunted Israel and David killed him. Now we have another one taunting Israel and Jonathan killed him. The mighty men imitate David. David goes first and they follow in his wake. I mentioned Benaiah in, verse, uh, in chapter 23. The text says that Benaiah killed a lion. David killed lions and bears when he was a shepherd. And like Benaiah, David used Goliath's weapon to behead him. David took Goliath's sword and cut Goliath's head off. These men were loyal to David and they followed his example. Here's how Christian courage manifests itself. We follow the example of Jesus. Remember, brothers and sisters, courage takes many different forms. Here in this passage, courage is embodied in warriors, these who wield weapons. But that's not the only type of courage. It's not the only type of courage in Samuel, as a matter of fact. I mentioned a while ago that I, I have been hard on Abishai. So there's three times in the books of Samuel that Abishai has a spear and wants to kill someone. And the, uh, the first one was Saul, and the second one was Shimei. And both times, uh, David looks at, at Abishai when he says, I'll go kill him for you. Ab, uh, David says to him, what's the matter with you? That's my loose paraphrase of the Hebrew. That's not actually in the Hebrew. But, but he's, what, are you, put, your, put your spear away. Except there's this one time when Abishai came with the spear and David said, man, it's good to see you, right? Different types of courage. There are times that courage throws a spear and there are times that courage does not throw a spear. If we follow Jesus, at least the, uh, Jesus' example, at least the example he left for us in this age, 
Following him means not killing our enemies, but loving our enemies. It, not mere, it means not merely celebrating our brotherhood, but trying to spread the brotherhood by joining his mission to seek the lost. Now, here's where we get confused sometimes or disheartened. Jesus does not take courageous men and turn them into wimps. That's not what Jesus does. It's not what Jesus is interested in doing. Jesus doesn't take strong men and make them weak. Jesus doesn't take brave men and make them cowards. Jesus takes courageous men who will be loyal to him and directs their courage, focuses their courage to serve his purposes. And there are times to throw your spear and there are times to uh, put your spear down. What form does courage take in your life right now? The courage of imitating Jesus. What form is that taking in your life right now? For some of you in this room, it may take the form of John Patton-like courage. In order for the gospel to penetrate places like Pakistan and Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and Libya, if, if the gospel is going to spread in those regions of the world, it's going to take men and women who are willing to face down the barrels of AK-47s. And your courage in following Jesus may take John Patton-like courage. What other forms does courage take? We were talking about this in our staff meeting this week. We, we talked about uh, where, well, I argued in our discussion that one of the most difficult places, I think, to represent Christ well is in the halls of a high school. Think about this with me. If you, if, you're, if you were a follower of Jesus when you were a teenager in high school, and you, are, you, are you proud of how you represented Christ in your high school? If you have teenage children, are you preparing them to do better than you did at representing Christ in your high school? Scott disagreed with me. He said that he thinks it takes more courage to follow Jesus before your unsaved family members. Is it easy to follow Jesus on a construction site? Where is courage showing up in your life right now? Christian courage. If courage is born of loyalty to Jesus and it shows itself by imitating him, how is it manifesting itself in your life? That would be an excellent topic for you to talk about at your Bible study the next time you meet or around the dinner table today at lunch. Do your kids know in your life where you display Christian courage? Uh, there's the courage of witness and there's the courage of confrontation and there's the courage of leadership, all in imitation of Jesus. Now we have to finish this morning, shall we? So let's talk about the third thing we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about why courage matters. Why does courage matter? Courage matters because it earns the reward of the master. Courage matters because it earns the reward of the master. Look at David's response to his mighty men. He earned their loyalty, they followed his example, and then he honored them. So verse 19 of chapter 21, nope, I think chapter 23. Yeah, chapter 23, verse 19. Was he not held in greater honor than the three, speaking about Abishai, who honored Abishai? David honored Abishai. He pointed him as a general in his army. He became their commander, even though he was not included among them. And then Benaiah, 
verse 23 of chapter 23. He was held in greater honor than any of the 30, but he was not included among the three. And David, David put him in charge of his bodyguard. David saw and recognized in these men uh, their loyalty and he honored them for, for their, their courage. You could summarize these passages of Scripture, I think, with three words. Loyalty, imitation, and reward. Courage is born of loyalty to Jesus. It manifests itself in imitating him and, and it, it earns his reward. It's a motivation that continues in the New Testament. I wrote several verses down. We're going to read them. First Peter 5, 4. Here's the promise for elders. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. For our elders who serve well. Joel Fry, Ellen Nelson, John Rhodes. The list goes on and on. It's a long list. Um, the crown of glory. 2 Timothy 4.8 Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have longed for His appearing. Are you looking forward to the return of Jesus? Do you long for it? Jesus will take note of that. He will notice that. He will see that. He, he is honored in your longing for Him to return and He, he rewards that. James 1.12 Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. That takes courage. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood that te- the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love Him. Beloved, remain loyal to Jesus in the midst of your trials. Remain loyal to Jesus in the midst of your trials. The Lord notices this. And he has promised the crown of life to, to those who love him, even when you hate your life, even when you hate what you're experiencing. Remain loyal to Jesus because he notices, and he honors those who long for his returning and who persevere in trials. Now I think Revelation 4.10 tells us what we're going to do with those crowns We'll receive them. And then like these elders, look what it says. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before him, before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. Here's loyalty on display, right? He is our greatest reward. You're worthy of these things. Every act of courage is for His sake. We act for His pleasure and He notices. He sees. He's pleased. And He honors those who honor Him. That's why courage matters. We've lost track of how many of these events we've had, but I think we've been hosting the Turkey Bowl for at least 12 years. So our Thanksgiving morning flag football games. And I've seen a lot of teams come through over these last 12 years, and I've observed a lot of behavior. Usually on the team, some sort of leader emerges. In the last few years, we've had captains, so they take the role. But even before that, somebody always emerged. And some of these leaders, well, uh, someone has to determine who plays quarterback, and someone has to determine who, who will call plays, and who will sub in and out and when, and some of those leaders are angry and critical and nasty. 
and and it, you have to occasionally remind them, you know, today's like a holiday. It's like a Christian holiday. You should kind of be nice. You, you do that, right? Some of them are that way. Some of them are encouraging and warm. Everyone on their team participates. Everyone gets a chance to catch the ball. Whose team do you want to be on? Well, the answer is obvious, right? You want to be on the winning team, right? Some of you, that's what you're thinking. I don't care if the guy's nice to me. If we can win, that's all that matters to me. Well, the good news is that Jesus always wins. His team wins. There's that. And he's encouraging and inviting and warm. And he's focused and he's victorious. The weight with which Jesus looms in your mind and heart is directly related to the role that courage plays in your life. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to you that we can read these list of names and, and it is inspiring to us. It is, uh, we aspire to live the sort of lives that would deserve to be on this list. Lord, I pray that you would turn our hearts and minds to courage for Jesus' sake. Would you, we pray, we, we, we sang before we looked into your word that you would show us Christ, that you would reveal his glory to us so that our hearts and minds would be transformed. And now we pray that you would do that, Holy Spirit, through your word, that you would exalt the Lord Jesus in our minds and our hearts, that we would be loyal people, courageous followers of his. Father, I know that in this room this week, you will call upon all of us to step out in faith and in courage in some way. Some of us, it will be in resisting uh, peer pressure. Some of us, it will be in speaking up for the Lord Jesus Christ when he's maligned. Some of us, it will be confronting a hypocrite, a brother or sister who is not living as they ought. Uh, courage, it will manifest itself in, in so many ways and, and you're calling us. Some of, some, somebody this week, you will speak to them about the needs of Pakistan and Afghanistan and you'll call them to Libya or Syria or Morocco Lord, I pray that you would work in us so that we would be men and women of courage, followers of the Lord Jesus, his mimics and imitators. Fill us with hope and, and joy because the day that the Lord Jesus is coming is one day closer than it was yesterday. And, and we would live for his reward. Help us, help us, we pray. We ask these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.